Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. And this is the episode when we're going to look back on some of the memorable things from 2017, a fairly uneventful year, I think, in the history of the world. But we'll try and find something. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast and we'll have some more soon. There's a reading list of pieces to accompany the podcast at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking, along with a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. 12 issues of fearless, expansive, elegant writing for just £12. I'm delighted to say we've got our super full, full panel with us. Helen Thompson, Aaron Rapport, Chris Bickerton and Chris Brook, one of whom is the other Chris, but we haven't worked out which. Trump. Trump happened in 2016 and then Trump continued to happen in 2017. There's a lot to pick from and I'm going to ask everyone for a Trump moment, a Trump memory, something that makes you think this was his year. Aaron. I keep getting drawn back to John Oliver's take on Trump and the Trump-Russia scandal, which is that it's stupid Watergate, as John Oliver calls it. It's Watergate by people who have neither the knowledge nor inclination to gain the knowledge necessary to successfully pull off a caper of this magnitude. And so the tweet that caught my eye the most was the one where Trump virtually admits to obstructing justice, which he'd already kind of done before in the past when he had announced on live television, you know, Russia, if you're listening, please do hack into the DNC emails and release more dirt. You know, that wasn't so much an obstruction of justice. That was, you know, asking a foreign adversary to uh, intervene in U.S. sovereignty. And that was so 2016. That's well. so 2016. So now we're to the point where, again, after saying, you know, Michael Flynn was a very good guy, he said, well, yeah, but Michael Flynn did lie to Mike Pence about the Russians, and I found about about that, and then I had to fire him. You know, of course, what we also know is that he let James Comey go, and he pressured Jeff Sessions to back off after he admitted that he knew that Flynn had lied about his contacts with uh, the Russian ambassador, which is a pretty much standard admission of obstruction of justice. Of course, then one of Trump's lawyers, the one, I think the one with the kind of snidely whiplash looking handlebar mustache, though I might be wrong, said, well, no, of course, it's absurd to say that he admitted to obstruction of justice. But that seems to be he didn't literally say the words, I obstructed justice. But yeah, it's just a lot of people who are batting way out of their league. But maybe the legal system doesn't really matter as much as it used to. Yeah, because there's this new podcast, Slow Burn, the podcast about Watergate is pretty good. But in it, they say the reason we're doing this now is we're kind of living through this again. And it's really good to imagine what it was like to live through in real time. And I thought a bit like you well but the difference is back then they were kind of teasing these things out and there were these layers of obscurity and connivance and now it's just no one's hiding anything no nobody's hiding anything and in a way it's a very bold kind of strategy although i don't know if it's a strategy right is a lot of it seems to be reflex and reaction but by putting it all out there and demonstrating that, in fact, the Republican Party isn't going to do very much. It can, in some ways, have a dampening effect on any expectations in Washington or amongst the population in the United States that anything will happen because you're covering up about as badly as you could cover up, right? It's more of the, what's the opposite of a cover-up? Everything's a big reveal and it's in your face, right? And we're getting away with this. What are you going to do about it? And so far, the answer is, you know, not much because we still need you to sign off on tax reform and entitlement reform and all this other stuff. So it's a way of, possibly it's a way of demonstrating power. Helen, your favorite Trump moment 
It's a bit odd in the sense it's one of his uh, tweets. I suppose it's not odd that it's one of his tweets where he was boasting that the stock market was at a, a new high. Which we should say it is, right? It is, That's not no, fake news. It's the fact that he had one of his better moments, I thought, during the campaign itself when he described the previous peak in the, in the stock market as a big, fat, ugly bubble. And I thought that this tweet is interesting because it shows the complete temperamental unsuitability he has to the office that he holds and that he thinks that reality somehow changes when it's not happening on his watch. It's a bubble. It's a when it happens on his watch because he's supposedly going to be judged for it, then it's a grand success. And the fact that he can't see that these are two different worlds, I think, says something pretty important about who he is. I have to say, the thing about Trump that still stands out for me from 2017 is the inauguration. I can, when I think about the year, it just looms over everything else. Partly, I can remember it much more vividly than anything else because that was the point where I thought, you know, this isn't going to be that different. He's president now. And it took about 45 seconds of him speaking to realise, and not just what he said, but the style in which he said it and the, the way the whole event was set up, that it was going to be different. And that's how it still feels. For me, I'm fascinated by the ways that people adapt to a president with an extraordinarily short attention span. There's an epic series of tweets that the international relations scholar Daniel Dresner at Tufts puts out where he assembles all the references where in the press where Trump aides or assistants openly talk about him as if he's a as if he's a toddler and there's a couple of things that I'm particularly fond of one is when some advice went out about how to present briefs or memos to Trump if you want him to read them and the the advice is to keep it very short only a very small number of bullet points and to talk about Donald Trump a lot uh, in enthusiastic ways because he likes reading about himself but I think the detail of the administration that that I was very intrigued by was when someone was hypothesising that the reason the Trump White House leaked so much, the reason it was impossible to keep information secure in Trump's White House, is that what White House staff realised is that if they leaked stuff to Fox News, Fox News would run it on their programmes, which everyone knows Donald Trump watches. And that's how he'd actually take things in. If you wanted to get Trump's attention, you don't write him a memo and send it with the official paperwork. You leak to Fox and Friends, and then he's watching, and then he's tweeting about it. And that's that's crazy. And we now know he watches eight hours a day. Uh, he which... denies that he watches eight hours a day, but it is said that he watches four to eight hours a day. But he only sleeps four hours a day, so it's, it seems reasonable to me that you eight hours TV watching, that still leaves you 12 hours governing time and four. 12 too many probably i tend to steer clear of some of the sort of trump memes and some of these sort of classic moments but there are some that are difficult to avoid and at some brief moment i was particularly interested in the in the series of recorded instances of the trump handshakes and there's the one that stands out which is you know, in politics, often you have a various kind of series of emotions, but excruciating embarrassment on behalf of anybody in that room is not often one that you feel. And when he's with Angela Merkel, and there's a proffered hand, I suppose, and he stares it out, 
it's amazing. And it's still not clear whether he doesn't see it or whether he's, you know, ignoring it, but the capacity to just live through... And how long that, does that last? How many seconds would you say that Six to eight seconds, something like that's that. A, that is a lifetime um, in politics. But yeah. when I saw that, I thought that's a sort of a, a winner. But then there is the the great film moment on the Champs-Élysées, with the sort of the drama of the cobblestones and his handshake with Emmanuel Macron, which goes on for... I mean, people have timed it. I can't remember off the top of my head how long it is, but it's incredibly Three long. <laughs> it feels like that. And people will know that I'm not Mr Macron's best friend, but he comes through that pretty well, his ability just to hold on, sort of grim, you know, grin and look as if he's talking and to give the impression that nothing dramatic's going on. So the handshakes are, are a lot of fun. And so the Theresa May one, that, what's the word for that? It wasn't a handshake, the hand hold. Or a hand grab. Clasp. Hand holding is sort of uh, too kind of... Very too curved. consensual. Right, Trump, enough. Talk about him again sometime. What else? Because I was thinking, Corbyn, Brexit, Trump. None of those happened in 2017. But Corbyn kind of happened again in 2017. In the terms of this podcast, the one that we recorded on No Sleep, where we all were looking at each other thinking, how did we not see that happening, was after the general election. Do you have a moment or a memory of that, particularly the kind of before and after I didn't take part in that um, podcast on No Sleep because I was in America at the time. It just so happens that on Election Day in 2015 and Election Day in 2017, I flew to America for an academic workshop. And so I had that thing of having a long day, the time difference meaning that it was the evening in America when the results were coming through overnight in Britain. And for that moment when the exit poll came out, I'd been met at Milwaukee Airport by a PhD student who was assisting with the workshop I was attending and I was explaining to him in the car as he drove me into town how the results of the election were about to become apparent and the Labour Party was going to be thumped and then as I dumped my suitcase in my hotel I got the news of the exit poll and then had to execute an immediate reverse ferret and then as we drove from the hotel to a Milwaukee bar and they like their beer in Milwaukee. I was explaining that what the result of the election did appear to be. So that was the dramatic moment for me when I realised that, like a very large number of other commentators, I'd got the mood of the election wrong and that Theresa May wasn't going to have the big majority she thought she was. That's the academic equivalent of that story that Zafar Ansari told us about playing cricket for England and in India and having a security guard on the boundary whispering to him the results of the American election. But for me, it was, I think I've probably mentioned this before, but the I did go to sleep after the exit poll, after the first results came in, there was a moment when Peter Kellner turned to John Curtis and said, you've got it wrong, it's going to be a majority of 80 or something, because I can't remember which seat it was. The Tories had outperformed. So I went to bed thinking, the Tories aren't going to do that well, but Theresa May is going to win a majority. And then at about one thirty, one forty-five, I checked my phone and it was on what Glenn Rangwala used to call real clear betting politicalbetting.com and the headline was if your mental universe cannot accommodate the idea of Jeremy Corbyn being Prime Minister get up now and I feel like I've never been back to bed since do you have a equivalent I think that I was yeah I was quite I remember quite a lot of what happened on the election night including something about three o'clock in the morning me putting out a tweet saying that I understood absolutely nothing about British politics if the exit poll was correct actually must have been earlier than three o'clock in the morning because it was clear by three o'clock in the morning that that was the case. And I remember my cousin texting me, who'd actually been the person for whom I'd learned what the exit poll was in the first place, saying, but Helen, you know, 48 hours ago you said this on Twitter, and I'd forgotten actually what I'd said on that point. 
But I think that the strange thing about the two tweets, if you see what I mean, is that there was both a part of me that had actually thought that what would happen would happen in about two or three years' time. I think I'd said something about uh, the fact that the past meant that the Conservatives were going to win this election and the the future meant that Labour was soon going to win the election. I can't remember exactly what it was better phrased than that. So my overwhelming sense then of realising that I'd completely called this election wrong was that time suddenly speeded up. You hadn't called it wrong, you'd called it prematurely. That that actually, I did have a a complete sense of bewilderment until, and this must have been five o'clock, six o'clock, the result from Mansfield came in. And um, Mansfield was a Conservative gain. It was the kind of seat that I thought would be replicated in this election much more than it was. It also happens to be the place where my grandfather um, worked for a long time, so I had this tiny little consolation that there was something that I understood, that Mansfield had voted Conservative. Erin, as someone for whom it's not quite so much at stake whether Jeremy Corbyn does or doesn't win these things, but we had Macron. Macron was this year, right? It seems so long. Yeah, so we had Macron, we had... Which one surprised you more, the British election or the French election? Certainly the British election surprised me more. I mean, my main takeaway from that night watching, I wasn't up as late, I don't think, as many of you, but I was watching when the uh, exit poll came in. And the thing that struck me was that nobody believed it, including the person whose organization had been responsible for conducting the exit poll. And rumor had it, right, that stuff coming back from labor was like, oh, no, we're not going to put any stock in this exit poll. And it got me wondering about just how badly polls as an entity, right, the polling industry has been hit by its results or its lack of results in the last two years, both in this country and then actually kind of got an undeservedly bad rap in the United States because it did pretty well predicting Clinton's overall vote, just did kind of badly in some very <laughs> key <the> states, <laughs> picking the winner, right? And that's because you have a weird electoral college system. But yeah, yeah, I found myself actually overcorrecting, doing the exact same thing. I said, well, I'm not going to put any stock in this exit poll either because I put too much stock in the polls trying to predict who is going to win in the U.S. case. And it reminded me that, you know, uh, actually the polling industry might not be doing as bad as as we think. And it's like the, the firm, I'm not going to not name them to spare their blushes. I can't remember which one it was, but one of them commissioned a poll which got the result exactly right. Isn't I think right? it was YouGov. Observation, wasn't it? And then suppressed it. Or was that in 2015? That was, that was 2015. Oh, sorry. Oh. I think so yeah. have got it right. To remember. It, it was Comres in 2015 okay. that suppressed their correct poll. So, so YouGov had its regular polling that was, like everyone else, um, not quite getting what was going on. But they also built their separate forecasting model, which for the last chunk of the election campaign was consistently predicting a hung parliament with some very spectacular individual forecasts, for example, of Labour taking Canterbury. And the YouGov model was the one that everyone said, mm-hmm. you know, this is this is extraordinary, don't believe this, this is very odd. Um, but it was that forecasting model that got it and almost it, it, exactly it, it right. It said that Labour would win Kensington, to which people said, well, any poll that says Labour is going to win Kensington is by definition mm-hmm. absurd. Not, of course, understanding that Kensington was not quite the constituency that they thought I know. it was. And I would include myself in that because I, th- I thought it was Kensington and Chelsea and thought that's not going to happen. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. So with Macron, obviously, it wasn't a surprise in the sense that the polls, well, apart from anything else, the French polling, amazingly accurate, but also we had lots of time to adjust to it. But if you take a step back and don't think of the night itself, but the weeks and months, still, of all of the things that happened in 2017, the most surprising thing is that Macron is president of France. So the French elections don't have that kind of concentrated intensity that the British general election had. And my recollection of that is not so much the night itself, it was the moment where Theresa May announced that she would announce something. And I remember wondering what it was that she was going to announce. And we, I remember with David, we spoke about this at the time, thinking, what on earth has she got to talk about? And we thought, maybe it's that she's ill. I know, I thought she was going to resign. But the prospect that she would call a general election already at the time seemed possible, but a slightly odd choice, not an obvious one. And I think that was a sort of a harbinger of things to come. But that was at the moment when whenever she did something, people went, oh, genius. Like when she appointed Boris Johnson as Prime Secretary, she's just fearless genius. And the same with the election. It was it took people about 10 minutes to go, Theresa May, she's just re- rewriting the rule book, just so brave. But the thing is, is that until that point, you know, events were supporting that narrative. I mean, look what happened in the by-elections. And there also, were only um, six weeks, were and they? And the local, the local yeah. elections as well. Amazing. So the British case had this amazing sort of abrupt sense of surprise. Mm-hmm. There was a moment, though, I do think one of those disruptive moments. For me, it was the, the outbreak of what was known as Penelope Gate, mm-hmm. where... So already there'd been the surprise that somebody like François Fillon was going to become the lead candidate for the right, uh, for the centre-right. People expected things to work out differently, but so he emerged. That was a surprise. But then very quickly, expectations converged around it basically being him as a kind of shoe in for prime minister and uh, as president, rather. And the shock, I think, came when suddenly that more or less stable world really did shatter. Uh, Because as soon as he was not so much out of the race, but a big question mark was against his name, then you started to have all sorts of possibilities. And people immediately started to think, what's the implication for Macron? But I remember the intense scrutiny of some of those press conferences where he was getting deeper and deeper into this scandal, things were coming out. It was just a non-stop series of revelations, and you thought it's probably over for him. And then all the questions start flooding in about what's going to happen. So in that spirit of there was a moment where it could have been anyone, in a sense... It's not that remote a possibility that we could have lived through a year in which Bernie Sanders was President of the United States. If the Democrats had nominated him, he would have won? Looking at Aaron? No, I don't believe Bernie Sanders would have won had the Democrats nominated him. I think he would have perhaps done better in certain states and worse in others. Uh, I think he would have done considerably worse in Florida. I think he would have done considerably worse in Virginia. I think he had never really been tested by the Republican attack machine, and it's pretty easy to launch attacks against somebody who had never really ever held a job until his 30s and was saying very nice things about the Castro regime in Cuba and the... So the the Corbyn thing wouldn't have repeated itself in that Corbyn showed that past a certain point, people don't care anymore. Well, maybe past a certain point, people don't care. The other thing to remember about... uh, America's a different place. Well, it's a different place, and Bernie Sanders couldn't even come close to winning the majority of Democrats in the primaries, uh, right? Lost by 3 million votes, which is the same amount that Hillary Clinton beat Donald Trump by. Now, yeah, you wouldn't have had last-minute surprises with Sanders the way you had with 
Comey releasing certain statements about, oh, yes, we're looking into these emails again uh, just 10 days before the election and that turning out to be nothing. You wouldn't have had things of that nature. But the attacks from uh, the Republicans would have been pretty swift and pretty hard hitting. And you had a person who was, again, running as a Democrat in name only and wouldn't have had the same amount of support, institutionally speaking, that somebody like uh, Clinton had had. So, so the rest of my question was going to be a world in which Sanders is president, Mélenchon is president of France, Corbyn is prime minister of the United Kingdom. But I mean, Aaron's already kind of put one little dent in the balloon. But is that, could we not have just lived through that year? Is that one really outside the bounds of what's possible? I disagree with Aaron. I think that Bernie Sanders would have beaten Donald Trump because I think that the issue with Aaron's argument is is it, it radically underestimates the liability that Hillary Clinton was as the, the Democratic um, candidate. It's true. Comey could have released something on Bernie Sanders that we don't know about, it's, like that big fat not, file he's got sitting on his desk. Bernie Sanders would have been a, a good candidate for the, the Democrats. But I think that um, Hillary Clinton was a spectacularly awful candidate for the Democrats. And given that the opposition was Donald Trump and given how much difficulty was in just a few weeks before the campaign ended, I think that Sanders uh, Sanders would have won. I think that Jeremy Corbyn, if the election had gone on another 10 days, even a week, could quite possibly have won. I think the Mélenchon one's different because I think that the difference between... British politics and American politics on the one side and French politics is the euro and that actually it's simply much more difficult in eurozone countries to face the prospect of significant change because it's just a lot more at stake in terms of immediate upheaval than there are in countries that have their own currency. So what I'm getting at in a way is if we'd opened a door to a different sort of universe but one that's not so different from ours it could be in political terms socialism everywhere. The Mélenchon is an interesting case because on the one hand you think it's not the two-horse system like the UK or the US and so would somebody like Mélenchon ever get to really being in a runoff? Um, but if we do go to 2017 and you have that first round of the presidential election, it is remarkable how close yeah, it was tight, um, it? all of those leading candidates were within a few percentage points. And he was, he was what, two points behind second place Le Pen? Was it 19 to 21? Um, yes, even if not even a little bit less, to be honest. Just under 2%, possibly, something like that. I mean, Macron was then a, even just a little bit ahead of, of Le Pen, but it was basically an even spread. But I still think that was maybe as far as he would possibly get. But um, He had squeezed Hamon down to an extremely low level. I'm not sure where else there were votes to squeeze from. As I recall it, the optimism on the left on election night was that Amon's supporters at the last minute would break for Mélenchon to send him over the top. But there was something implausible about that line of argument because as the election got that close, if you were still planning to vote for Amon, then you know you, you absolutely weren't going to vote for Mélenchon because everyone knew he wasn't going into the second round, so it was obviously a wasted vote. But the vote did have a point to it, which was that it was votes that were being ostentatiously not cast for the best-placed left candidate to get into the second round. not going to ask you to say what's going to happen in 2018, um, but what do you think's going to happen in 2018, Chris, or other Chris? Don't give us a prediction. Give us a future memory. On the European scene, I think, I think I'm right in saying that Italy is probably the country But where... people say that every year. Well, this time last year we had the referendum. Um, you know, we have elections next year. Italy is, as we all know, a core member of the Eurozone. Um, its politics matter. Berlusconi, some say, is back. He may be. 
but uh, the five star movement may be a bit down the northern league may do better i mean it's a it's a, it's unclear what's going to happen in italy but i think it's a, an interesting you know an interesting so your prediction year. is that something will happen in italy yeah i think the elections will not be what we expect them to be the drama that's been relatively subdued in recent months but i think is going to come back into focus at some point is the question of who's going to lead the Labour Party after Jeremy Corbyn. There was this period after the failure of Owen Smith's attempt to unseat him when there wasn't a great deal of optimism among Corbyn supporters that he could go on and on and people were casting around looking for somebody who might be able to fly the left flag in future and it ended up reaching the rather implausible idea that Rebecca Long-Bailey might be you know, the future of, of socialism in, in Britain. That moment has passed, and now people do wonder about Keir Starmer, they wonder about Emily Thornberry, there's clearly some enthusiasm behind a figure like Angela Rayner, and it's going to be interesting, I think, to see how, as the parliament takes shape, as the Brexit process stops being about one key summit or deadline or cliff edge after another to see how patterns of parliamentary opposition shake down, how these potential figures in the Labour Party who might emerge as leaders do. But I think that's what I'll be keeping an eye on. And if you had to pick one? Emily Thornbury, I think. One word, impeachment? I'm guessing not. No, not impeachment. Uh, I would say that there's a good chance Robert Mueller gets fired sometime in the next few months. i don't I can't imagine why that would not happen. Uh, there seems to be a lot of precedent for it in terms of Trump's behavior. And the interesting thing then, once Mueller gets fired, will be to see, I wouldn't expect much to happen again on Capitol Hill from Republicans. There'll be, again, lamentations said, no, it's too bad that he did something like that, very unpresidential, right? And then everybody will clear their throats and go back to entitlement reform. But the interesting thing then we'll see, I would expect to see a kind of cacophony of noise being made by district attorneys and state-level prosecutors. And this will get rather interesting rather quickly when you see a lot of indictments being levied at people in Trump's circle and perhaps Trump family members. Uh, So yeah, that's my big prediction that probably won't come true. But I think the likelihood of a Mueller firing is much more likely than the likelihood of a Trump impeachment. And again, my number one prediction is always Trump chokes to death on a piece of KFC. And whether or not that is good for Kentucky Fried Chicken stock or not, I'm, I'm not sure. But that is, I think, probably the most likely outcome of all of this is a fried chicken-related death. <laughs> Helen, do you want to top that? Uh, yeah, completely um, differently. My prediction for 2018 is, is going to be we have to wake up to the fact that what we haven't been facing in 2017, including the way we've been just talking about it, and that is is that Russia is significantly remaking the Middle East and changing the balance of power in Asia in terms of its relations with China, that the Syria war has been a total disaster of American foreign policy that has let Russia back into the Middle East in a, in a big way, including acting as a power broker in Syria itself, including Russia's relations with Saudi Arabia, Russia's relations with Egypt, Russia's relations with Israel, before we even get on to Russia's relations with China and One Belt, One Road. And I think that American domestic politics has been consumed by the Russia question. It's ignored the fact of what has happened in the power vacuum that the Americans left in the Middle East because of Syria. So that just about covers it. Luckily, I don't have to make a prediction because you've covered everything. So we'll have to uh, see what comes true in 2018. I hope everybody has a lovely Christmas. Join us again in the new year. Keep in touch with us 
on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. We'll post reading and other things for you to follow. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. I did have shredded wheat, and I didn't do more than that. I didn't do less than that. I'm a simple man with simple pleasures. Two? There are multiple. I mean, there were mini there were Oh, mini, the mini ones. The mini ones, yeah. No. One mini one would be... <laughs> no, one mini one would be a, a sparse bit too sparse, yeah, aesthetic. Yeah. You can actually mm-hmm. eat the mini ones. The big ones is like eating hay. Yeah, it's like you feel like a you feel like livestock at that yeah. point, basically. But around the turn of the nineteen eighties, the advertising was all about whether you could eat three shredded wheat. No, and, uh, well, and, and Ian Botham could. Apparently, Ian Botham could. But what yes. a what a stupid, stupid challenge that would <laughs> prove nothing upon its completion. Well, it would sell more shredded wheat. It would certainly sell more. Shredded and therefore, wheat. fits perfectly. Yeah. Go on then, Chris. How many shredded wheat? Actually, I do. I, I haven't eaten shredded wheat for many years. Uh, I'm sure I've eaten Weetabix more recently than shredded wheat, but I haven't eaten Weetabix for a long time. Uh, I eat Alpen in enormous quantities. <laughs> No is, added sugar. Is it sugar? addictive? No, no. Of course, of course, of course. I don't eat the no added sugar stuff. That's dis- that's disgusting. Uh, I eat I eat Alpen regular Alpen without adding extra sugar, but it does have a lot of sugar in it. Um, and so it's that, very, very, very tasty. Though, it, it is. Yeah, yes. And uh, uh, for dinner ever. No, not for dinner. Oh, uh, well, I mean, no, I'm, I'm sure there have been evenings when fed up with the world, I've eaten Alpen. But no, it is a staple breakfast food. Um, although I didn't eat any this morning. <laughs> Thanks. No, we, we you tested. Oh, do you need to? I, I want to know what you have for breakfast. It's always steel cut oats or something. <laughs> uh, well, you can twiddle it more so we get the full, the full breakfast. The this is the podcast. Yeah. There's nothing else because we haven't really. The Alpine discussion has completely thrown me. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 